Father, the anthem of our heart is take this world, but give us Jesus. Lord, we have no other boast. We have no other claim. We have no other prize. We have no other portion save in the death of Christ our God. In this morning, O oh God, we approach you with hearts of reverence and adoration for what you have done for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That you have ransomed us, you have reconciled us, you have redeemed us, you have regenerated us, you have justified us, and you have adopted us as your own. Oh God, we give you all praise and glory. Lord, we pray for this time this morning as we open your word as we study the word that you have given to us, your self-revelation in the scriptures, and we pray that you would use your word by your spirit to conform us more into the image of Christ, that you would exalt your holy name in this time, and that your people would be edified. Oh God, would we approach you with hearts that are pure and hands that are clean, giving you the worship that is rightly due your name, all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, Roots. I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. This morning, we have the privilege of looking at a brief snapshot of an encounter between the incarnate Son of God and the Samaritan woman. And as you navigate your way to John chapter 4, I want to pose a sobering and serious question to you this morning. And that question is this. What defines you individually as a person? If someone that you did not know were to come up to you and ask you, who are you? What makes you, you? What defines you as a person? How would you respond? In the ungodly world that we live in, that is plagued by the philosophy of intersectionality, everybody is claiming labels and identifying markers to define who they are. And not only do these categories become descriptions, but they become the very identity of a person. What defines you as a person? Paul David Tripp in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, writes, human beings by their very nature are worshipers. Worship is not something we do. It defines who we are. You can't divide human beings into those who worship and those who don't. Everybody worships. It's just a matter of who or what you serve. You see, most foundationally and fundamentally, you as a human being have been created in the image of God, and as such, you are a worshiper. In the passage that we come to this morning, Jesus identifies for us who is a true worshiper? What does the authentic worship of the true God look like? Therefore, this passage that we come to this morning is vitally important and relevant to your daily existence. You know the context of John chapter 4. Earlier in John chapter 4, Jesus redirects his ministry focus from the southern region of Judea to the region of Galilee. And he has this divine appointment as he passes through Samaria. And Jesus encounters this Samaritan woman who was ostracized from society, revealed by the fact that she was coming to draw water at high noon. And Jesus offers this woman living water, eternal life mediated through the person of Jesus and the indwelling Holy Spirit. Jesus confronts her with her past sin and her present sinful circumstances. Such was the supernatural knowledge of Jesus that the woman exclaims in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. 
Well, perceiving Jesus to be a prophet, this Samaritan woman presents this theological conundrum or dispute that was taking place at this time, namely the nature of authentic worship, specifically the location of authentic worship. And this morning, I want us to zero our focus in on verses 21 through 24 and Jesus' response to the Samaritan woman's claim. It's in these verses that Jesus identifies and defines what constitutes the authentic worship of God. In so doing, Jesus also identifies and defines who are the authentic worshipers of the true God. So if worship is not merely something that you do, but rather something that defines who you are, then it is essential for you to grapple with and understand our Lord's teaching in this passage. It's in our study of John chapter four, verses 20 through 24, that I want you to embrace four essential truths of authentic worship so that you will live a pleasing life of daily worship to the God who is worthy of it. Four essential truths of authentic worship so that your daily life would be characterized by pleasing and acceptable worship to the God who is worthy of every ounce of it. And before we study these four essential truths together, let me read our text of study. John chapter four, verses 21 through 24. These are the words of the apostle John under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit. And these are the words that he pens. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The first essential truth that I want you to embrace this morning is the location of authentic worship. The location of authentic worship, and this is found in verse 21. In this verse, Jesus responds to the Samaritan woman's claim in verse 20, and in so doing, provides for us the location of authentic worship. Look back at your Bible in verse 21. Jesus says, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In this encounter, Jesus commands belief of the woman. The woman has already acknowledged Jesus to be a prophet as he confronted her sinful adultery expressed in the previous context without ever having met her. And he's about to redirect her focus about the nature of authentic worship. And he says, woman, believe me. And Jesus had that right, did he not? If anybody is, to get, is gonna give proper prescriptions and essential truths on the nature of true authentic worship, would it not be God himself? Jesus, the second person of the triune Godhead, God incarnate, has every prerogative and every right to instruct concerning the authentic worship of God. And just as belief was commanded from this woman, so too Jesus commands your belief in his trustworthy revelation concerning the nature of authentic worship. The hour that is referenced here in verse 21 in Johannine theology and this divinely inspired gospel refers to that crucial hour of Jesus's death and resurrection. But what mountain is Jesus referring to here in verse 21 when he says, neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem? Well, the mountain that Jesus is referring to is Mount Gerizim, which become the official designated center of Samaritan worship. It was in the year 931 BC that the northern tribes separated from the southern tribes of Judah. The first king of the northern kingdom, Jeroboam, established Shechem right here as the cultic center of the northern kingdom. 
And he designated worship sites in Bethel and Dan to prevent people from going to Jerusalem to celebrate the three annual feast. You can see this in 1 Kings chapter 12. And Mount Gerizim, which was located on the southern side of Shechem, became the official designated center for Samaritan worship. And the worship of the Samaritans was highly synchronistic and idolatrous, mixed with the worship of Yahweh with pagan idols and gods. And in verse 21, Jesus says, not only in Mount Gerizim, but also in Jerusalem, that authentic worship will not take place. Jerusalem was the city where Solomon had established the temple, where the cultic operations took place. It was the place that, as Deuteronomy 12.5 says, that Yahweh had chosen to establish his name. And Jesus says that neither in Gerizim nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And Jesus doesn't just instruct in this way because the temple on Mount Gerizim had been destroyed some 125 years prior to this encounter by John Hyrcanus, or because Jerusalem was about to be sacked by the Romans. Jesus issues the statement because with the inauguration of the new covenant, with the dawning of this hour, the true worship of God would not be geographically bound to a physical location. Well, this demands that we ask the question, where does the authentic worship of God take place? Where is authentic worship conducted? And to understand that truth, we need to understand the word that Jesus employs here over and over in this account. The Greek word that is used is proskuneo, a compound word, which is made up of a preposition towards and the verb to kiss, literally to kiss towards. And this word is used a total of 60 times in the Greek New Testament, 11 times in John's gospel, and 10 total times in these five verses, ranging from verse 20 through 24. And just a brief side note, as you study the Bible, as you work through your daily devotional Bible plans, when you see a word that is repeated over and over again or a certain concept that keeps coming up, you want to perk up and pay attention because it's important. It's important. In secular Greek, this word was used for the adoration of the pantheon of Greek gods. And it was early on in its usage that this word not merely expressed the outernal or the outward or the external manifestations of worship, but the internal heart attitude. The word is properly defined by the leading Greek lexicon as expressing an attitude or gesture, one's complete dependence on or submission to a higher authority figure. And frequently this word was used as an inferior would approach a superior and the prostrating of themselves at their feet to, to kiss their feet or the hem of their garment. It emphasizes an act of adoration, of reverence. And clearly Jesus teaches in this verse that this reverence, this this adoration, this worship of God is not confined to a physical location. But sadly, this is the view that so many individuals who fill the pews Sunday in and Sunday out have. You know people like this. Perhaps it's yourself. Perhaps it's family members. You know those who are churchgoers, but who are not worshipers of God. You know those who are pew sitters, hymn singers, tithe givers, but who are not worshipers of God. Perhaps this is your false understanding of the location of authentic worship. Perhaps if I were to ask you, where do you worship? You would say 250 Countryside Court, designating Countryside Bible Church, the physical location as the confines of your spiritual worship. Our Lord teaches in this text that worship is not confined to a brick and mortar physical building. Again, worship is not something that you do or something that you participate in. Rather, it defines who you are. The Bible teaches that authentic worship takes place at the level of the heart. What we desire most, 
what we love the most, what our chief ambition is, that is what we worship. Our ambitions, our desires, our pursuits, our goals, our wants, that is what we truly worship. And the Bible speaks of these having their origin or their source in the heart, the inner man. And the reason that the sage of Israel offers the injunction in Proverbs 4.23 is because the location of authentic worship is at the heart level. Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flow the springs of life. Our Lord taught the same truth in the gospels. In Matthew chapter 15, Mark 7, Luke 6. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, he reflects this truth that worship flows from the heart when he says this, whatever a man depends upon, whatever rules his mind, whatever governs his affections, whatever is the chief object of his delight, that is his God. I think it was Tozer who said, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. In reality, that is what you worship. David Clarkson says, that which we most desire, we worship as our God. Desire is an act of worship. And it's because the authentic worship of God is located from the heart, flows forth from the heart, Paul offers that exhortation to the Romans in Romans chapter 12. Therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. This is your spiritual service of worship. You see, the true worship of God is a lifestyle. True worship of God is to be the perpetual pattern of your life. It is to define your life. It is to mark your life. Not just a single hour on Sunday mornings or Wednesday evenings, but every single hour in between. Remember that worship is not something that we merely do, but it defines who we are. And as we come to verse 22 in our text, there is a second essential truth that you must embrace, and that is the foundation of authentic worship. The foundation of authentic worship. Look with me at verse 22. There, Jesus says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus transitions in this verse from addressing the woman individually to addressing the entire class of Samaritans. He uses the plural pronoun, and this is fronted for the point of emphasis and contrast. In other words, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We Jews worship what we know. Now, why does Jesus say that the Samaritans worship what they do not know? Well, the Samaritans accepted the law. They accepted the Torah. They accepted the first five books of the Bible as divine revelation from God, but they rejected and excluded the rest of the Old Testament canon. The Samaritans' worship was ignorant. It was not based upon the fullness of God's self-revelation and disclosure. Their worship was better reflected by the Athenians on Mars Hill. You remember Acts 17 as Paul is passing through Athens. He comes and he sees the objects of their worship, verse 23. And he says, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. You see, the Athens, the Athenians, their worship was in ignorance. It wasn't a worship that was founded upon the true knowledge of God. And likewise, the Samaritans had rejected the totality of the Old Testament canon, only accepting a portion, those first five books of the Bible, and they worshiped God in ignorance. They worshiped what they did not know. And Jesus teaches us a foundational and a fundamental truth in this verse. You see, the true worship of God, authentic worship, is rooted in and grounded upon a true knowledge of God. 
if you do not possess a foundation of formal content, your worship is not based upon knowledge. This is why our contemporary quasi-Christian musical milieu of songs and groups is a deplorable travesty. You see, true worship is founded upon the revelational knowledge of God. Emotional, anthropocentric, and quasi-spiritual songs that repeat the same chorus over and over and over again to emotionally manipulate a person is not the authentic worship of God. I did a brief experiment yesterday. There's a, uh, there's a song out there that's very popular, 49 million downloads on Spotify. It's by Michael W. Smith. It's titled Surrounded, This Is How I Fight My Battles. And in that five-minute song, this popular Christian artist repeats the same line 38 total times in five minutes. Now, if you're an analytical guy like myself and you like numbers, you times the five minutes by 60 seconds and you come up with 300 seconds and you divide that by 38 and you realize that every eight seconds, he repeats the same exact line. There's a total of 18 words encompassed in that entire song, an average of three and a half words per minute. That's not the authentic worship of God. Whatever happened to when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Contrasted to the Samaritans, Jesus says that the Jews worship what we know. And what knowledge is Jesus referring to here by this statement? Jesus is referring to the saving knowledge that comes from God's self-revelation in the scriptures. And the Samaritans' rejection of the entire counsel of God in their exclusive acceptance of the Pentateuch, they had abandoned and forsaken the knowledge that results from the fullness of God's revelation. The scriptures are clear that the saving and revelatory knowledge of God is to be that foundation for all authentic worship. In the Old Testament, the, the people of Israel are frequently condemned for their lack of true, genuine knowledge. Isaiah 5, 13, therefore my people go into exile. Why? For their lack of knowledge. Hosea 4, 6, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I also will reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. Authentic worship that is acceptable and pleasing to God must be founded upon God's self-revelation in the scriptures, not just a mere external formalism. Hosea again says in chapter six, verse six, for I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And in verse 22, Jesus provides the basis for the statement we worship what we know with that final clause. Jesus says, for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus has two ideas primarily in mind when he says salvation is from the Jews. First, the people of Israel were the vehicle by which God's revelation came. Paul says in Romans 3, 2, that they were the ones who were entrusted with the oracles of God. But not only that, these oracles testified to the character of God and his work of salvation in history. And they also testified to the salvation that God would accomplish in the saving work of the Messiah. Later, Paul writes in Romans 9, 5, it is from the people of Israel that the Christ comes according to the flesh, who is God over all, blessed forever. You see, it's because of these reasons, Jesus says, salvation is from the Jews. D.A. Carson in his commentary says, the Samaritans stand outside the stream of God's revelation so that they worship, their worship cannot possibly be characterized by truth and knowledge. While we possess more Bibles and translations than we can probably even count, 
I want us to consider this morning, how is it that we stand outside the stream of God's revelation? I mean, most of you probably don't physically slice and dice your Bible to make it say whatever you want it to say, like Thomas Jefferson did with his edition, but there are ways that we abandon, forsake, and neglect God's revelation in the Bible. And if true authentic worship is to be founded upon a true knowledge of God, it is absolutely essential that we address these tendencies in our own life. And first, first way that we neglect God's revelation in the Bible, that we stand outside the stream of God's revelation is when we outright have an inconsistent pattern of study in the scriptures. Perhaps this looks like once or twice a week, you pick up your Bible to study it for a brief time or your, your Bible study consists of receiving that one verse that comes across your screen from your Bible app. There's a second way that we stand outside the stream of God's revelation. And it's when we consistently read the scriptures, but fail to meditate upon them and consider how they are to impact our daily life and how their truths are to transform us more into the image of Christ. This might look like having a daily devotional time every single morning before work, but by the time that you close the cover of the Bible, by the time that you start your daily task, you don't even have the faintest idea what you read. A third way that we stand outside the stream of God's revelation is when we're more influenced and swayed by the cultural stream that we live in having our thoughts and our attitudes shaped and molded by popular media or news sites rather than the Theopneustos scriptures. Christian, let me ask you a question. When you get that date or weekly report of your screen time or you look at what you spend your time on on your phone, which is greater, your screen time or the time that you think about, you read, you study, meditate upon, and share God's revelation in the Bible? Are we being more shaped and influenced by the pattern and the course of this world rather than having our minds renewed by the transforming scriptures? A fourth way that we stand outside the stream of God's revelation is if when we live our lives as if the scriptures were not sufficient to address life's complex issues, what this practically looks like is we begin to supplement and add other things to the teaching of the scriptures, abandoning the authority and the sufficiency that the scriptures possess. A fifth way that we stand outside the stream of God's revelation is when we live as if practical atheists, not even considering what God has had to say following our own thoughts, our own desires. Brothers and sisters, because the true worship of God, the authentic worship of God is founded upon a true knowledge of God, these are all tendencies that we must address. Authentic worship that flows from the heart is founded upon a true knowledge of God's revelation. There's many people that profess to be Christians that they worship God based upon their denominational or cultural milieu. It's what we've always done. Many worship God according to their own whims and fancies. It's what makes me feel good. It's what makes me feel right. You can just turn on the TV and Christian radio to see this explicitly on display. Jesus confronts those false ideas and teaches that the authentic worship of the true God springs from a proper knowledge of God. And let me just say before we depart this point that there is a direct, invaluable correlation that exists between your knowledge of God and his word and your worship of him. In other words, the higher you rise in your knowledge of God and his word, Inevitably, your worship will ascend to higher heights. A higher theology will inevitably lead to a higher doxology. 
in verse 22, Jesus teaches that the foundation of authentic worship is the true knowledge of God. Well, that brings us to a third essential truth about authentic worship, and it is the object of authentic worship. The object of authentic worship. Three times in a matter of these four verses, Jesus specifies the object or the recipient of true authentic worship. You can see it in verse 21. You will worship the Father. Verse 23, true worshipers worship the Father for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. And there again in verse 24, Jesus teaches that the object of authentic worship is the Father, the first person of the Holy Trinity. Now surely this doesn't mean that we are merely to offer worship to God the Father to the exclusion of God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, and you're correct. The scriptures are replete with evidence that the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the proper recipients and objects of authentic worship. Now, as we examine and consider this essential truth, I wanna take a biblical detour. The scriptures teach that all worship has a proper object. In other words, worship does not merely occur in a vacuum. Worship is not neutral. Worship is directed to an object, whether that be a someone or something. And in the Bible, the proper object of authentic worship is the triune God. I mean, this is essential to even the first table of the Decalogue. In Exodus 20, verses three through five, the first and second of the 10 commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. We see this in the book of Revelation. Remember, after John receives the vision and the disclosure of the marriage supper of the Lamb, we read in Revelation 19.10, John says, I fell at his feet to worship him. That is the angel who delivered this vision. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Later in Revelation chapter 22, verses eight through nine, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren. Worship God. You are to worship God exclusively. Anything else is idolatry. If you elevate or exalt anything or anyone to a position of higher preeminence than God, it's idolatry. One Puritan said, idolatry is religious worship given to the creature or the creation. Now, generally for you, this probably doesn't look like crafting a silver wood or stone idol and erecting it at the hearth of your fireplace at home. What this looks like for you and me in the daily affairs of life is having a greater desire, a greater love for appreciation, acceptance, comfort, power, relationships, you name it. Possessing a greater desire for these rather than the desire to be pleasing to God. By loving him preeminently and loving your neighbor as yourself. When these desires and pursuits become more important than pleasing God, then you're in the throes of idolatry. An idol can be anyone 
or anything that takes the preeminent position of your thoughts, ambitions, or desires. And that's why the instruction to guard your heart, to watch over your heart, is so essential. Because of the prevalent nature of idolatry, because in every single one of us, in the recesses of our heart, contains the seedbed for idolatry. John Calvin famously quipped that the heart is the perpetual forge or factory of idols. And brothers and sisters, it's not just a one-time decision in your life to worship the true God. But this is the daily battle that must consume you as you put on the full armor of God. It's not just a once and a lifetime decision. It occupies our every single day affairs. When someone says something that makes you irritable, what are you worshiping? What are you wanting? What are you desiring more than to love God and love your neighbors yourself? Jesus teaches us in these verses that authentic worship has a definite object. And the Bible tells us that the authentic object and recipient of authentic worship is the God who created us, sustains us, and redeems us. The object or the recipient of all authentic worship is the God of the Bible. That brings us to a fourth and final truth that Jesus teaches us about authentic worship in this text. And that fourth truth is the manner of authentic worship. The manner of authentic worship. You can see this truth expressed in verses 23 through 24. Jesus says, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. In these two verses, Jesus presents for us two characteristics that mark the authentic worship of God. The first characteristic that Jesus presents and teaches in this verse is that authentic worship is in spirit. Authentic worship is in spirit. Jesus in this verse is confronting this false view of worship of the Samaritan woman and the prominent idea of that time where worship was merely external, confined to a physical location. Jesus says in verse 24 that God is spirit. This truth and this perfection of God is absolutely foundational to the manner or the way in which we're to worship God. To say that God is spirit is to express the perfection that in his essential being, God is immaterial, invisible, and without physical composition. First Timothy 1.17 says, Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. To worship in spirit alludes to the internal reality, the internal disposition of the heart, not just a mere going through the external motions or rituals. You see, authentic worship has a present internal reality in the heart, soul, and mind of the worshiper that is, expresses itself in an overflow of praise and adoration to the object of worship. Here, the worship of God. R.C. Sproul says, to worship in spirit is worship that comes from the depths of our souls, from our inner spirits, from the very cores of our being. Jesus presents a second characteristic of the manner of authentic worship in these verses. And that second characteristic is that authentic worship is in truth. Authentic worship is in truth. What does it mean to worship God in truth? To worship God in truth 
means to worship him according to his complete and total revelation. Ultimately, worshiping him upon the basis of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself declared himself to be the truth. It means to worship God in the manner and according to the ways that he has prescribed. And herein lies the debate between the regulative and the normative principle of worship. You see, to worship God in truth is to affirm the regulative principle of worship, that God is to be worshiped according to the specific prescriptions that he has prescribed and given us in his word. Just because scripture does not forbid or negate a particular practice does not mean that that practice is fair game in the worship of God. And I want you to notice from these verses that this manner of worshiping God in spirit and truth is not a mere suggestion or option. Look at verse 24 with me. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Four-letter word with dramatic impact, that word must. I would encourage you to underline it in your Bible. It speaks to divine necessity. It's not a recommendation. It's not a suggestion. It's not an option available to the believer. It is a divine necessity and mandate to worship God in spirit and truth. Believer, you could come to church every single Sunday. You could sing every single hymn. You could participate in the Lord's table when it's offered. You could have somewhat regular practices of daily discipline and devotion to the Lord. But there is a reality that you could be going through these and not be worshiping God in spirit and truth. Let me ask you, do you participate in the organized structure of the church, attend church week in and week out, without the reality of having a true internal disposition of worship to God? Do you come to church every single Sunday to receive an emotional high from the service without any thoughtful pondering of the truth of the hymns being sung or the veracity of the word being taught? You see, both of these examples allude to both spectrums of worshiping in spirit and truth, either worshiping in truth, but not spirit or worshiping in spirit, and not truth. They are both absolutely essential and interwoven into the true authentic worship of God. Now, as we consider the glorious truths in this passage, how should we respond this morning? Brothers and sisters, in John 4, 21 through 24, Jesus not only teaches essential truths concerning the authentic worship of God, but by doing so, he identifies who the true worshipers are. You see that in verse 23. This classification, this category of true worshipers insinuates the reality that there is a classification, a category of false worshipers, pseudo-worshipers. And the frightening certainty is that in this room this morning, there is most definitely some in this midst that could be classified as false worshipers. So how do we distinguish between the true and the false? Well, Jesus has just taught us what authentic worship of the true God looks like. The false worshiper does everything opposite. A false worshiper predominantly focuses on a certain location or confinement of worship. A false worshiper is based on worship that is in ignorance and devoid of true knowledge. A false worshiper manifests his worship in external rites and rituals without having a true heart of devotion that overflows to God out of an appreciation and adoration of what he has done. A false worshiper, as our Lord taught elsewhere, can be characterized by the fruit that is born in their life. A false worshiper is one who suppresses the truth of God in his unrighteousness, 
A false worshiper is one who substitutes and exchange, exchanges the true glory and worship of God for the glory and worship of the creation. I must ask you this morning, are you a true or a false worshiper? We've already seen that we're all worshipers. It just matters who or what you serve or worship. Do you serve and worship the true God of the Bible? Or do you worship and serve your own idolatrous lust or a God that you have created in your own imagination? You see, in biblical terms, false worshipers are idolaters. We've already discussed that this morning. And I want you to observe and note what the Bible says about the eternal destiny of those who are perpetual idolaters. Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and says, do, not, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, or adulterers, or effeminate, or homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Flip to the end of the Bible. The eternal state. Revelation 22 verses, 21 verse 8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and here it is, and idolaters, false worshipers, their part will be in the lake of fire that burns with brimstone, the second death. Now, if you're classified as a false worshiper, if you have to be honest with your heart, and you have to say, this worship that the Lord talks about doesn't characterize my life. The Bible has a prescription for you. <laughs> if you're an unbeliever here this morning, whether you're a guest or you are a consistent regular attender, the Bible has a prescription for you if you're characterized as a false worshiper. And that prescription is to repent. To turn and forsake your idolatry. There's a perfect picture of this presented in the church of Thessalonica. Paul writes there in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, describing the church of how they turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. But not only must you turn and forsake your false worship, your idolatry, you must embrace with the eyes of repentant faith the glorious person and work of Jesus Christ. This twofold prescription is the demand upon your life today, unbeliever. Turn from your idolatrous false worship and place your faith in the true God who is worthy of all of your worship. But if you're a believer here this morning, and I praise God that the majority of you are, then I want to provide encouragement to you. And I want to provide encouragement to you from the pen of Stephen Charnock concerning the authentic worship of God. Charnock says this, God is a spirit infinitely happy. Therefore, we must approach to him with cheerfulness. He's a spirit of infinite majesty. Therefore, we must come before him in reverence. He is a spirit infinitely high. Therefore, we must offer our sacrifices with the deepest humility. He is a spirit infinitely holy. Therefore, we must address him with purity. 
He is a spirit infinitely glorious. We must therefore acknowledge his excellency in all that we do and in our measures contribute to his glory by having the highest aims in his worship. He is a spirit infinitely provoked by us. Therefore, we must offer up our worship in the name of a pacifying mediator and intercessor. Brother, sister in Christ, who are you? We are all worshipers. Is your life characterized by the worship of the true God? May we, by God's grace and by the power of his spirit, be defined by the authentic worship of the true God. In the daily pattern of our lives and our thoughts and our affections and our desires, in every pursuit in life, be all to the praise of the glory of his grace. May we offer our lives a pleasing aroma as living sacrifices, which is your spiritual service of worship. To God be the praise and glory. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you have revealed to us through your word that you have created us in your image. You've created us to worship you, the true and living God, the God who created us, the God who sustains our very existence and the God who ultimately redeems a people for yourself through the person and work of Jesus Christ. But God, we must confess and we must repent before you and acknowledge that we have forsaken you. In the everyday battles of life, we have sought our own idolatrous lust, our desires, our ambitions, our goals, our wants, and we have elevated them to a platform that only is rightfully deserved by you. But God, we rejoice. We do rejoice that there is forgiveness of sin that is found in the blood of Jesus Christ. We rejoice that you have delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved son. We rejoice that you have made us true worshipers. For such people, the father seeks to be his worshipers. And God, we rejoice that there is coming a day when we will be consumed by the blazing glory of our great triune God, worshiping him for days without end. Oh God, set the seal of your indelible word upon our hearts this morning. For your glory we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.